zone. You can't go. All the plants are gonna die. I'm gonna take a bath. Bad dates. I'll alert the media. Boys, keep off the moors. It's evil. Don't touch it. The name's Pliskin. No more hangers. Welcome to Vintage Video, where we're rewatching the '80s so you don't have to. We'll be reviewing every major film release of the 1980s in chronological order overanalyzing what you've seen and spoiling what you haven't. I'm Patrick O'Reilly. I'm Jesse Bayless. And I'm Richard Wells. And today we'll be discussing Polyester, released May 29th, 1981. It was written and directed by John Waters and released by New Line Cinema. This was a very early title for New Line, who had only produced their first film three years earlier, with Mark Lester's Stunt in 1977. Prior to that, they were mainly a distributor for titles like Reefer Madness, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and all of John Waters' earlier projects, starting with Multiple Maniacs in 1970. Well, it seems right in line with what they do. Yes, but I think so. That's, I mean, that's interesting, though, because like, if you were to tell me, you know, New Line, that's not the kind of movie that comes to, to mind Right, now. they started as kind of like cult favoritism stuff. Yeah, so. it's definitely not what they became. Yeah. Lord of the Rings. Yeah. <laughs> John Waters had gotten his start collecting his high school friends and neighbors together in a group called the Dreamlanders, and together they rented a former commercial bakery to use as a studio and home. Waters has continued to employ the Dreamlanders in all his films, though in smaller and smaller roles. Over the years, Waters has occasionally added new actors to his regular stable, and a few prominent members like Divine and Edith Massey have passed away. The official title of Dreamlander is usually granted to anyone who's appeared in more than one of Waters' films. When New Line announced their 1981 slate, Polyester was set to release second of four films with a reported budget of $300,000. It would be the director's first time working with 35mm. It was also his first R-rated effort, as his previous titles had scored X's or went unrated. The film scored record box office in local test runs on account of Waters' already certified cult filmmaker status. Polyester is a parody of the exploitation genre referred to as women's pictures, and specifically the women's pictures of director Douglas Sirk. Waters mimics Sirk's lighting and editing styles throughout. In the film, the central family the Fishpaws live at 538 Wyman Way, as a reference to actress Jane Wyman, who appears in Sirk's All That Heaven Allows, from which Waters drew particular inspiration. Though I was not familiar with Sirk's films when I sat down to watch this in high school, I feel like Waters may have started a trend of these parodies because I understood exactly what he was going for. John Waters was inspired to present this film in Odorama by the famous theatrical gimmicks of William Castle, whose 1960 film Scent of Mystery utilized the first and only presentation of Smellovision. Over the course of the film, 30 cents were released by the seats in the theater, but most patrons complained about the loud hissing sounds drowning out the dialogue of the film. <laughs> while others complained that sense would reach them too long after the queue, or sometimes not at all. You know, uh, we did a project that involved uh, the Positron VR chair yeah. at DreamWorks, and um, so, we, so we had one in the office, and we had a bunch of stuff preloaded on it so that we could, you know, demo it to people while we were working on our project for it. And one of them, I believe it was actually titled uh, Scent, or Sense, uh, and and it had a little like, it had a little module inside the the this egg shaped chair that would release smells at certain points huh. during the film, and yeah. it was the same thing except it was also in VR, and it was just a really kind of trippy experience. That's crazy. So I think we've come a long way in odorama. <laughs> <laughs> William Castle also pioneered a gimmick called Percepto, which involved a single chair in the theater that would vibrate when the creature from the film escaped into the audience to emulate an attack. Waters has described seeing 1959's The Tingler multiple times, often seeking out the specially wired chair from the audience. <laughs> it's like the like the six D-box chairs in yeah. the yeah. entire theater. Is that still a thing? I think so. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, it's been we a while. We have to do D-box track qcs at work so yeah oh okay so it's still a thing yeah i remember we went to go see like fast and the furious i think yeah fast what? five yeah fast five in d-box that was great yeah it was amazing <laughs> I mean, this is all like like a uh, what matinee right was yeah based and that's also a yeah. reference to william castle right mant <laughs> half man half ant other castle gimmicks include the dreadfully named illusion o 
whereby theatergoers could hold up a piece of red or blue cellophane during the film that would render the story's ghosts invisible or visible. <laughs> but if you just put it down, they were slightly visible. <laughs> My favorite, though, is still Emergo, which was literally just a skeleton with red lights for eyes that was dragged through the theater on a track. It just sounds completely lame. It sounds like a scene from, like, what was it, The House on Haunted Hill or Wax Museum, like one of those old... Uh... William Castle directed The House on Haunted Hill. Oh, did he? Yeah. Isn't there a scene with a, with a skeleton, like, on yeah. a I wouldn't be surprised if that film came out in Emergo. <laughs> Well, yeah, because I believe that the skeleton emerges from a pool of acid. Yes. That Vincent yeah. Price is trying to... Because it's a trap door in the basement yeah. that yeah. they keep getting pushed into. <laughs> Castle's smell vision found early competition in the form of Charles H. Weiss's Aromarama, which would instead use the theater's air conditioning to distribute 72 unique oh, smells God. over the course of the film. Except except when they had to like change the theater to a right. different movie, and you're like, why does it sm- still smell like cut uh, grass? We just in have here. to buy a new air conditioning every day. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> the film was 1959's Behind the Great Wall, and although it was developed second, it actually beat Scent of Mystery to theaters. So I'm sure that pissed off William Castle. Both gimmicks would prove wildly unpopular, though. <laughs> <laughs> Who'd have thought? In 2003, the film Rugrats Go Wild would become the second and last film to utilize Odorama as an intentional homage to John Waters. Waters was very disappointed to learn that New Line Cinema had allowed their copyright on the phrase Odorama to lapse. I, I feel like if you were to pick another movie to follow up, like a movie about babies is not one I'd want to smell. But you would go and get a card. <laughs> I think they had cards at like 7-Eleven and then you go to watch the movie and scratch and sniff. In 2011, the fourth Spy Kids film was advertised as releasing in 4D, with the fourth dimension being smell, in the form of scratch and sniff cards that they called Aromascope. And don't they do the Nightmare Before Christmas at the El Capitan? Don't they have like... Yeah, they call it 4D. I think yeah. it's because you're watching it in 3D, but they also, when it when you're in snowy scenes, they, they drizzle snow on, snow on the Yeah, and, but they also blow out scents, I think, too. Do they? Maybe. I don't remember. I don't remember smells. I've definitely been there for it. The film starts in 4-3 aspect ratio in a laboratory where Dr. Arnold Quackenshaw, a prominent ear, nose, and throat specialist, is working on a technological breakthrough called Odorama. He speaks directly to camera as he explains that people will be able to smell the film from their seats in the theater using an Odorama scratch-and-sniff card. Dr. Quackenshaw tells us what a nose is and how it works before showing us how the Odorama card will work. Moviegoers were provided a card on their way into the theater with 10 numbered squares, and when you see a number appear on screen, you are instructed to scratch the square and smell it to experience the smell from the scene. The first time I saw this movie was on DVD, but the DVD that my friend brought over came with the card, so we did the scratch and sniff stuff when I first watched it. As Dr. Quackenshaw explains the rules, we see a number one blinking beside him on screen, and we are expected to scratch the first square, which emits the smell of a rose on the table behind the scientist. Dr. Quackenshaw is ecstatic to find that the technology is working according to plan. Yeah, see, you get it, you smell it, yeah, it works. By God, it actually works. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Odorama. And as he says the words, this is Odorama, he raises his hands and the 4-3 picture stretches into widescreen which I think is a specific reference to the film This is Cinerama, which did a similar bit at the beginning where it was mm. a thinner aspect ratio and then widens out to fill the Cinerama dome screen. We dip to black and then come back with aerial footage of Baltimore suburbs. The camera drifts down into a cul-de-sac and up toward the double doors of the Fishpaw household. The doors swing open as the camera approaches like the last scene in Titanic when we're floating through all the ghostly rooms of the ship. It seems like we're in someone's POV now because the camera pans back and forth through the rooms in the house like it's looking for something. It heads upstairs, and the camera settles on Divine as housewife Francine Fishpaw getting dressed for the day and applying makeup at a desk in the corner of her room. An original song called Polyester plays over the footage. It was written by Debbie Harry, but it's being sung by Tab Hunter, who will play Todd tomorrow later in the film. Polyester this is your life, Francine. Smell the fragrant perfume. The lyrics mention Francine specifically, and as she applies deodorant, the lyrics invite Francine to smell the fragrant perfume, 
and I assumed we'd get a number here for the Odorama board, but it doesn't happen. <laughs> they, they hadn't decided by the time they wrote the song which yeah. things they were going to put on the card. There's a couple moments <laughs> where they where they joke like, oh, something smells, and then they don't yeah. smell it. Yeah. And so I feel like that is like they had like 15 of them, and they were like, oh, well, you know, it'd be better if it's an even number, and we couldn't figure out this smell, so we just cut that one. <laughs> we can't fit that many on the card. Yeah. <laughs> Francine pulls on a dress and then drags a scale out from under the bed. She weighs herself on carpet, which isn't a super reliable way to do that, but the scale goes <laughs> all the way around past the maximum 300 pounds and stopping at 13, implying, I believe, 313 pounds. She looks disappointed and kicks the scale back under the bed. In her front yard, a circle of protesters carry signs complaining about Francine's husband Elmer's pornographic theater. They chant, Down with Smut. Down with Smut! The group call themselves the Citizens for Decent Films, but one of their signs just blatantly says, I hate movies. So <laughs> I don't think they're for decent films. So so this is a parody of what you said was women's films? Yes. So what were those like? Like They were just like a housewife? I, it was a housewife who was downtrodden and had a terrible life and then met the perfect man of her dreams and then fell in love with him. It was It was the film equivalent of a romance novel oh where okay. someone was in like a terrible situation and they found their way out of it by the end of the film okay that makes sense that this is a parody of that thing. yeah francine is horrified to find these protesters in her yard just then elmer pulls into the driveway and his car is quickly swarmed by the protesters they follow him across the yard to the front door one parent asks how he can live with himself sending children to hell by presenting such filth and he tells them that children 12 and under are a dollar 50 because he has no shame in his work he shoves past them into the house and asks Francine why she hasn't notified the press. Obviously, she's embarrassed to have protesters here, but Elmer thinks this is an excellent opportunity for publicity. The theater will be packed tomorrow night! Oh, Elmer, please don't call the press. It's bad enough already. Francine complains that the neighbors are literally spitting at her when she goes shopping. Elmer reminds her that if he wasn't selling porn to the town, then they wouldn't have money to go shopping with. He calls Channel 12 News himself and gives them his address, 538 Wyman Way, and introduces himself as the owner of the Charles Art Theater. Francine cries that she'll never be able to show her face in church again, and Elmer yells at her to get him a drink. Elmer relaxes on a lazy boy while Francine rolls out a fancy-looking drink cart to mix him a beverage. Elmer lifts their dog Bonkers into his chair and kisses the dog on the face for a while. Francine complains about the dog's odor, but again, we are denied the Odorama <laughs> Square. Francine moves to the bottom of the stairs and rings a bell to call her daughter Lulu downstairs for dinner. She rings it again to call for Dexter, her son. Lulu seems like a brat and shouts down to her mom that she'll come down eventually. In Dexter's room, he's flipping through a notebook that he has filled with newspaper clippings of women's feet. And lastly, Francine calls up to Elmer to announce that dinner is ready, forgetting that he's already sitting at the table. Elmer, dinner served. I'm in here waiting for it. The family sits down at the table and they manage to say grace before a news van pulls up and Elmer steps out on the porch for an interview with Jerry Holler from Channel 12 News. They ask him to comment on the situation and he reminds the crowd that it's a free country and he'll show whatever he wants. Right now they're featuring something called My Burning Bush playing every two hours from 2 to 10 p.m. The crowd get loud when they realize he's just advertising his business and he laughs heartily at them. Francine rushes out to scream at the crowd to leave them alone because she hasn't done anything wrong. They laugh loudly in her face and throw eggs at her, but in the reverse angle it looks like she's getting hit with something red. I can't tell if it's like tomatoes suddenly from the other side. Yeah. She scrambles back into the house and we get a quick insert of Dexter dousing a rag with chemicals from under the sink and then taking a big whiff of the fumes. Elmer can't wait to see the interview on the 11 o'clock news. He and Francine are startled when a young man pushes into the house through the front door. This is Freddie Ashton and he's here to take Lulu on a date to the library. Before she allows Lulu to leave, she asks Freddy to verify that he isn't a friend of Bobo Belsinger, the notorious troublemaker, and he says he isn't. Lulu comes down and clothes that Francine identifies as new from their smell, but again, we don't get a number. <laughs> First, Lulu says that she borrowed the dress, and then she claims that she bought it with money she earned dancing for the boys at school. Lulu and Freddy head out on their library date, and Freddy holds the car door for her. She tells him the date will cost $10, but before they even get out of the cul-de-sac, they are blocked in by Bobo Belsinger, and Lulu ditches Freddy for her real date, and Freddy leaves. Apparently, this is something that John Waters used to do when he was a kid. He was not allowed <laughs> to date certain people, so he would 
have friends pretend to take him on dates and then eventually they just had to trick people into doing it and then he would walk away from them to go on the dates oh, that's with the funny i thought to. you were gonna tell me the other way around <laughs> that's that, somebody, that he was the bell singer that somebody oh. uh, tricked him into into being a date <laughs> <laughs> that he was the freddy yeah <laughs> Lulu, Bobo, and Bobo's buddy drink and drive around town, swatting at pedestrians with a broom from the passenger side window. This car Bobo was driving was actually John Waters' personal car. They hit a rabbi outside a theater, an Asian woman crossing the street, and an African-American woman in a choir robe at a bus stop. All three victims shout after their attackers, but when the bus pulls up to the stop, the choir robe woman commandeers the bus to chase Bobo's car and blocks him into a parking lot. She kneels beside the car and bites a hole in the front passenger side tire. <laughs> the actress, Jean Hill, wasn't supposed to actually bite the tire, but she did anyway and broke a tooth doing it. Oh, Aww. God. <laughs> she drags Bobo out of the car and starts beating the shit out of him, and then we cut to Dexter on a fire escape with binoculars. He's watching a woman through a window as she clips her toenails, and he seems very aroused by the scene. We cut to Elmer and Francine in bed for the 11 o'clock news. The anchorman says they have no suspects, and an ongoing case involving a foot stomper loose in the Baltimore area. The foot stomper subplot is based on a real person, George Mitchell, who terrorized Nashville residents for 15 years as the notorious foot stomper. Apparently, it started with purse snatching, when Mitchell decided that women might release their purses if he injured them first, so he would surprise them with a foot stomp, but then the first time he did it, he got a little overexcited and decided he didn't need the purses anymore because <laughs> it turned out he had an insane foot stomping fetish. He started attacking women in 1970 and continued until his mysterious disappearance in 1985. <laughs> okay. In that 15 year span, he was arrested 40 times and only spent 11 months outside of prison. Wow. Pretty impressive. We see one of the stomper's victims being rolled out of the hospital with a cast on her foot and the reporter interviewing her here apparently looked enough like Jay Leno that someone added him uncredited to the film's IMDb page, but it's not Jay Leno. <laughs> it's an actor named Chuck Yeaton, who has a credit in the film as hospital reporter. Oh, there was another reporter later, though, and I thought that was the Jay Leno reporter. No, this is the guy. The news transitions to the protest outside of the Fishpaw residence, and Elmer is disappointed when the showtimes have been edited out of his statement in favor of Francine's breakdown on the porch. Another news story involves a member of the Manson family breaking out of a women's prison. They turn off the TV to get some sleep, and Francine tries to initiate intimacy with Elmer, who is not in the mood. She smells something and tries to waft an air freshener over the bed when the number two appears, just in time for Elmer to fart under the covers. Yeah, I was, I was a little confused about the timing of these numbers. Well, I think the joke was supposed to be that it's like, oh, the number two, oh, now you're going to smell an air freshener, and then you go to smell it and he farts. And it's like, oh. it's supposed to smell like an ass. Okay. Yeah. Got uh, it. So uh, that the timing was part of the joke. It was literally a prank on the audience. Got so. it. Yeah. All of, all of the smell things are not good smells. Yeah. And most of them are preceded by smells that you would want to smell. And then at the last second, they're switched out. Okay. Got it. In his sleep, Elmer starts talking dirty to someone named Sandra. And we get a dramatic organ sting like from an old timey radio show as Francine realizes that her husband may be cheating on her. It's probably a Douglas Sirk thing, too. I don't know. Easy, Sandra. <laughs> she climbs out of bed and follows a smell around the room looking for evidence of his adultery. She finds a receipt from the White Gables Motel and sobs quietly to herself. The next morning, Elmer pushes the blaring alarm clock to the side of Francine's head, demanding breakfast. Get up, Francine, you big oaf. I want some breakfast. What time is it? Time to get that fat ass out of bed. That's what time it is. I guess I'll have to fix my own cereal. As soon as Elmer sits down at the breakfast table, the kids leave for school. When Francine comes down to apologize for sleeping in, he pushes past her out the door for work. Bonkers starts to bark at Francine, alone in the house, until her mother, LaRue, enters the house without knocking and then calls out to her. Francine? Francine? I'm in the little girl's room, mother. Her mother barges into the bathroom and demands to be taken shopping insisting that using the toilet is a waste of time. Francine catches her mother stealing money from her purse in the bedroom. Outside, Francine's best friend Cuddles Kavinsky, as played by Edith Massey, is stepping out of her limousine and instructing her manservant Heinz to take her laundry to the laundromat. She's the best character of the She's entire movie. She's wonderful. I love her. <laughs> 
It sounds like Francine's mother is not a fan. Good lord, Francine. Don't you know it's bad luck to let retarded people in your home? Call me a cab this instant. It seems like she's mostly upset that Francine would hang out with a woman who used to be her maid, but Cuddles recently inherited a massive estate from a former client, and now she's rich. Francine calls a cab to take her mother shopping and invites Cuddles into the house. It turns out Cuddles is even richer today than she was yesterday. Francine, I'm in a heavenly mood today. I just got my second installment of my inheritance. Let's celebrate! That calls for a big lunch! Cuddles invites Francine to her upcoming debutante party. Francine shares with her that her marriage seems to be on the rocks when the phone rings. It's Sandra Sullivan, Elmer's secretary, calling to announce that Elmer had to go on a work trip and he won't be home tonight. We cut to Elmer's office where he and Sandra are stripped down to their underwear and Sandra is being played by Mink Stoll. The office is decorated with a giant white trash poster, a poster for Russ Meyer's Faster Pussycat Kill Kill, a poster for the Christine Jorgensen story, and a large photo of a swastika over his desk. <laughs> Elmer offers to share pictures of Francine with Sandra and they both laugh about how fat and ugly she is. Sandra has a surprise for Elmer and holds up her birth control pills, and he returns the favor by showing her a condom, but then he immediately destroys it. Francine shares the proof she found with Cuddles, the receipt for the motel. The phone rings again, and Cuddles offers to answer it. For whatever reason, she decides to speak Pig Latin. It's Mr. Kirk from Overly Junior High School, and he's calling about Dexter's truancy problem. The audio of this phone call is used at the beginning of one of my favorite Avalanches songs called Frontier Psychiatry. I actually knew the song before I saw the movie, so when my friend tried to show it to me for what he thought was the first time, he was very confused when I had this whole scene memorized. <laughs> that DVD version that we watched, by the way, it came with an Odorama card, but because the copyright had expired, it was called Videodorama for the home video release. Videodorama? Yeah. That is so hard to say. Yeah. Because of his repeat absences and the suspicions of the faculty, Dexter is being expelled from the Baltimore County school system on account of what they deem criminal insanity. It's the opinion of the entire staff that Dexter is criminally insane. Same, 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 same. <laughs> Francine is obviously distraught to learn this, but Cuddles tries to convince her that Dexter is just playing polo with his friends <laughs> because she just knows about rich things now overnight. Mm -hmm. We cut to Dexter standing in front of a store watching women cross the parking lot in high heels. When another woman comes out carrying groceries, he steps forward and crushes her foot with a stomp. She screams with terror as he laughs maniacally at her. Francine asks Cuddles to head over to the White Gables Motel to look for Elmer's car. Oh, you mean like a spy, Francine? Yes. You got yourself a deal. I just want to talk in Edith Massey's voice for the rest of my life. <laughs> She's the best. Cuddles pages Hines at the laundromat, which was his cue to return and pick her up. She hides behind the trees in Francine's yard on her way to the limo, and then shouts at Hines to open the door for her because it's an emergency. It's not locked or anything, she just expects him to open the door. She gives him instructions to head to the White Gables Motel. Back inside the house, Francine is doing dishes when Lulu dances into the room. She collects a soda from the refrigerator and then shakes it up before spraying it everywhere while Francine is cleaning. She offers to share her report card, and it's all Fs. <laughs> First, Lulu lies to her mother that the grading system has changed, and F means fantastic, but eventually she admits that she's quitting school to become a go-go dancer at the Flaming Cave Lounge. Francine tells her to go to her room, and she does, but she immediately climbs out the window with a rope ladder. Honestly, if Addie brought me a a report card that said all f's and she's like no 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 it's it, the grading system has changed i totally believe yeah. her like, <laughs> it's, oh these are fantastic good job nice <laughs> she walks out to bobo combing his hair and blowing bubble gum in his car at the curb they make out for a bit and then they drive away that night at the white gables motel parking lot cuddles is sitting in her limo reading the 1979 social register just then elmer pulls up and he books a room with sandra cuddles is devastated on behalf of her friend Perfect You're going to put all her quotes in here. <laughs> yeah, it's hard. That night, we get an update on the Stomper story, and this time, the eyewitnesses have put together an illustration of the culprit. Understandably, it bears a striking resemblance to her son, Dexter. The local news outlet has set up a phone line, and you can just dial Stomper to leave anonymous tips as to the Stomper's location. Francine turns off the television and follows a smell all around the house. 
She comes down the stairs. She grabs a vacuum out of the closet, and we cut to the front yard where Bobo and Lulu are sniffing airplane glue out of paper bags. We get a number three for our third smell on the Odorama card, airplane glue. So what's airplane glue? Like for, for like model, model airplanes. airplanes yeah. Oh, like CA glue? Sure. It smells fantastic. In California, we just call it glue. <laughs> Francine rushes up to the car and tears off the passenger side door before picking a fight with Bobo. Lulu is rooting for her boyfriend against her mother, but Bobo wins and he gets back into his car to drive away when Dexter shows up at the house, sniffing out of a tiny container and approaching his mother as if intoxicated. He's looking down at her feet as she backs slowly away from him across the grass. Eventually, he takes his shot and stomps on her foot. She follows him into the house where Lulu smashes a vase on the carpeting of the living room. Francine is already having a breakdown when Lulu admits that she's pregnant with Bobo's baby. She further explains that she doesn't intend to keep it. The phone rings and Cuddles has some unfortunate news. He's here, Francine. At first, I thought he was walking a dog. Then I realized it was his date. I'll be right there. I'm going to have a really hard time not cutting every Edith Massey quote into this episode because she's so fucking (laughs) adorable and hilarious and her delivery of every line is just magical. Francine intends to meet her at the motel and bust in on her cheating husband and his secretary. She follows her nose in search of the door to their room and Francine charges the door and bashes it off the hinges on the way in. Elmer and Sandra are startled by her sudden appearance and Francine starts snapping photos, intending to use this evidence to score a huge settlement in their divorce. Coitus interruptus! Get out of here, Francine! Caught you, didn't I? Right in the act of adultery! (laughs) I just love that line. Right in the act of adultery. The couple try to rub it in Francine's face how happy they are together. Sandra talks about the jewelry and the clothing that Elmer buys her, and we get our only mention of the title outside of the soundtrack. If you want, you can look at my clothes. They're the finest of polyester, and I didn't pay for them. Cuddles agrees to testify in court to what's being said here as Elmer and Sandra leave together. Francine, traumatized by the adultery, enters into a montage of alcohol abuse. She wakes up hungover in her bed and stumbles through the house for a while. Her kitchen phone rings, and it's just Elmer making pig noises and laughing maniacally until she hangs up. Francine starts chugging a two-liter bottle of Pepsi from the fridge until the family dog growls at her. She suddenly catches a whiff of scent number four and follows it around the house to the front door where she finds a man delivering two large pizzas. She explains to the man that she didn't order anything just as two more pizza men arrive with the same order. So the fourth smell is pizza. Right, it's not that bad. I thought they were all bad. Uh, He doesn't like pizza. (laughs) (laughs) What? You're off the podcast. It's not true. I'm staying on the podcast. (laughs) (laughs) But I hate pizza. She has to turn them all away, explaining this was a prank from her husband. Her phone rings again, and it's Elmer and Sandra making orgasm sounds into the phone. Lulu comes into the room to steal money for an abortion, and Francine tries to talk her out of it until Lulu walks away. Francine resumes her drinking, but drops a glass bottle in the entry hall, and then tries to scoop the shards together with her bare hands until she's knocked over by the opening of the front door. It's her mother again, here to lecture her on her alcohol problems. She teases Francine with a tiny airplane-sized bottle of liquor, and we see the number five on screen, but when Francine gets her hands on it to drink, her mother explains that it's actually gasoline, and she spits it up all over the floor. We cut to Elmer and Sandra driving around in a car with a megaphone on the roof, announcing to Francine's neighborhood what a fat alcoholic she is. She weighs 300 pounds. It is an alcoholic. <laughs> <laughs> She eats an entire cake at one sitting. You just see her stretch marks. <laughs> because of her drunkenness, both her children are delinquents. <laughs> <laughs> He's just laughing hysterically. It's I just love it because they're obviously his kids too. Yeah. <laughs> he just keeps going like this, like, what an embarrassing thing for her. I don't care. Do you guys recall the last time we saw a vehicle driving around with speakers attached to the roof? I'm going to say Blues Brothers. I think it was after that, actually. Peter Boyle was driving it. Oh, Oh. Holy Moses? No. Shoot. (laughs) Uh, Uh, No, it was... uh, Give me that old-time religion. A.K.A. Oh, sorry, not Holy Moses. That's that other one. Um, That's the Dudley Moore one. It's the... the, In God We Trust? That's Mm -hmm. right. 
The doorbell rings and Francine crawls to it. Cuddles walks in in a horse riding outfit. Francine begs her for help, but Cuddles has other plans. I am an alcoholic. Well, you should get out more then, honey, and forget your silly nilly problem. You gotta get me to the alcoholics meeting. I'll take you to your club meeting, Francine, but first you're going shopping with me. I simply cannot stand another day undecided about my debutante gown. I've got to get to the alcoholics and meet. Francine collapses and Cuddles has to page her manservant, Heinz. She isn't calling for medical assistance, but instead to help redress Francine to an acceptable outfit for shopping in. On their way to the store, Francine spots a cowboy in aviator sunglasses leaning against a white Corvette. In a dressing room somewhere, Cuddles is enamored by a Halston piece that she found in a closet. Do you recall the last mention of designer Halston on the podcast? No. I don't. I didn't think you would. In an interview with Andy Warhol, the Lone Ranger actor Clinton Spilsbury claimed to have a brief relationship with the designer. Francine is getting impatient and worried about missing her meeting. A sudden bout of nausea causes her to vomit into her purse. We cut to a grocery store where Dexter follows a woman down an aisle. Back in the dressing room, Francine and Cuddles are being thrown out for their behavior. By the way, I didn't mention it, but uh, Cuddles is in the dressing room just tearing clothes to fit them around herself because she's not picking out her sides at all. She's just picking <laughs> out whatever she sees and likes. There's, um, I found deleted scenes on YouTube today, and that lasts much longer in the original version. She's just <laughs> destroying like everything in this whole room. At the grocery store, Dexter stomps the woman and is immediately grabbed by two men who call for the police. We cut to the AA meeting where Francine is being invited on stage to speak. She's nervous, but manages to introduce herself and announce her alcoholism before we cut away to Lulu in the lobby of an abortion clinic. She appears to be next in line when the room is suddenly swarmed by pro-life protesters. They ask Lulu what the world would look like if the parents of various historical figures had been aborted, Einstein or Kennedy. One woman takes it the farthest by marching up and slapping Lulu hard across the face, insisting, Jesus! what he would do you <laughs> lulu runs home where she tries to force a miscarriage by bashing herself with a hammer or diving belly first on the edge of the couch and eventually just punching herself francine tries to call the home of the shepherd's flock to come collect her daughter a pair of nuns skid up out front and take lulu away with them we cut to a room full of pregnant teens at the home of the shepherd's flock the nuns enter the room and announce that all the girls will be going on a hayride even though it's pouring outside the girls are all loaded up, and Lulu cradles her belly on the bumpy ride, complaining it hurts. We cut back to Francine's home, and she's having a dream, spinning around in her kitchen as a dense fog drifts in through the window. A pizza man crawls in through the window, and we fade to Francine in bed during the dream, caressing her breasts before we're back in dreamland again. The pizza guy throws Francine against the counter, and they start having sex, when suddenly the scene is replaced with a shot of the cowboy she saw leaning on the Corvette. He's played by Tab Hunter, who we heard singing that first song, and he's shirtless with a towel over his shoulders and dripping wet as if he just got out of a pool. Do you recall the last time pizza inspired intercourse? Witch's Brew? I was going to go for Night Riders. Yep, that's correct. <laughs> Witch's Brew was last year. Night Riders was this season, so you win. In Witch's Brew, they ordered pizza and then they go have sex while they're waiting for it. There you go. The next morning, a pair of squad cars skid up to the house and the police demand Francine open the door to comply with their search warrant. They barely give her enough time to wake up before putting a sledgehammer through the front door, but it seems like the door wasn't even locked because the cop doesn't reach through the window he bashed open, he just turns the knob and opens the door. <laughs> they toss potted plants around the house and slice open the couch cushions in search of evidence because of Dexter's arrest as the Baltimore foot stomper. They find his notebook of foot pictures and a mannequin leg in high heels. Cuddles pulls up out front and poses like a celebrity for the press surrounding the home. Francine tries to hang herself using a rope tied to the top of the refrigerator. When Cuddles finds her there, trying to commit suicide, she tries to drag her friend along toward a picnic, but she's actually tightening the noose as she tries to pull Francine away from the fridge. <laughs> to be fair, the, like the noose is hanging from the fridge, but Divine is very tall. Yeah. <laughs> so she has to like slump just, down yeah, to hang she's herself. she's just bending her knees. Yeah. <laughs> Fire trucks start pulling into the cul-de-sac, and Francine assumes out loud that Elmer called them as another prank. On the way to their picnic, Cuddles offers Francine more liquor, and she gulps it down. They get to a clearing in the woods to lay out a blanket. Cuddles points to the wonder of nature to cheer up Francine, but they're quickly swarmed by ants who eat all the food they've prepared. 
Francine starts sniffing the air for smell number six as a skunk walks by and scares them away from their picnic blanket. Back at Francine's home, her mother is intercepting the mail. It looks like the divorce has gone through and Francine is entitled to $2,000 a month and the house. So mom is on the phone with someone intending to muscle in on Francine's checks. Time for us to move in on that pot of gold! Someone's at the door. The doorbell rings and it's trick-or-treaters. When Francine's mother informs them there is no candy in the house, they break in to start destroying everything. Eventually, they remove their masks to reveal that they are Bobo and Bobo's friend. Mom pleads with them until Bobo shoots her, I think in the leg, but it's hard to tell, and she falls to the floor and then grabs another gun and returns fire, hitting Bobo in the chest. Lulu walks in and collapses sobbing over Bobo's body. Back outside the house, Heinz escorts Francine to the door, and inside, she is horrified to find her place destroyed and her mother bleeding on the floor. Uh, 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 no! It's all your fault! No, no! We see the number seven on screen as Francine races into the kitchen to find Lulu with her head in the oven. Presumably, we should be getting a gas smell from the Odorama card. Francine drags Lulu out of the oven and then notices a suicide note written by Bonkers the dog, who has succeeded where Francine failed in hanging himself from the refrigerator. She screams, and we dissolve to the next morning. Francine reads in the paper that the foot stomper has been released after pleading insanity. She looks up to see Dexter approaching the house in a three-piece suit with a briefcase and a large painting under one arm. Dexter jumps into her arms and explains that he's been healed by psychiatry and medication, and he's an artist now. His work is predominantly foot-focused, but Francine is very supportive, offering to hang them all over the house. She offers him a nice plate of cookies with milk. Dexter notices the bottles of alcohol and offers to help her get off the sauce. Lulu wanders into the kitchen, similarly transformed. She wants to make amends. She's mourning the death of Bobo and the miscarriage of their child together, but she plans to cope with her newfound hobby. But I've discovered macrame! It's helped me find myself! I'm gentler now and more creative. I'm an artist now too, Lulu. I'm off drugs and ready for a new beginning here at home. They all hug and thank God. Francine heads out to the hospital to check on her mother. Mom is just as awful as she's been the whole time, and Francine finally unloads on her before walking out. Shut up, mother! For 44 years, I've tried to be a good daughter to you, and all I've gotten in return is abuse. I've given you money, thousands and thousands of dollars, and still it's not enough. Well, I've had it. You can rot in that wheelchair for all I can. The pain, the pain, my heart, you're giving me a heart attack. Oh, God, help, help. She pretends to have a heart attack from the shock, but Francine isn't buying it. On her way home, she asks the cab driver to drop her off when she notices a pack of ambulances on the side of the road and the sexy Corvette cowboy walking around them. He waves her over because he wants to show her a decapitated head he found on the road beside the accident. <laughs> he saw the whole thing happen, but he's comically callous about it. A cop walks over to collect the head, but not knowing what to do with it, tosses it into the bushes when nobody's looking. <laughs> <laughs> Francine's dream guy introduces himself as Todd Tomorrow, and he invites her on a long country drive, admitting to finding her very attractive. Yeah, I got something I want to show you. Yes? It's long. Ooh. And it's sleek. Ooh. And it's powerful. Ooh, what is it, Todd? It's my new vet. The number eight flashes on screen, imploring us to enjoy the new car smell, care of our odorama cards. Again, not an unpleasant smell, I guess. Francine gives the car a good sniffing before Todd slams the door in behind her, and we're off on the road again. We get a montage of Francine and Todd running in slow motion through the countryside, laughing together under the film's love theme, a song called The Best Thing. This song was also written by Debbie Harry, but did either of you catch who was singing it? No. Mm -mm. I can play you a clip if you want, because you might recognize it. Sure. We met. We spoke. Our love became infinity. Our timeless fantasy. One boy, one girl. Care to hazard a guess, Richard? Neil, Neil Diamond? It's not a singer. It's an actor. Oh. That's not in this movie. Our real life fantasy. It's William Shatner? It's a William. Oh. But he goes by Bill. Good thing. It's Bill Murray. Oh, is it really? <laughs> yeah. 
I it's like I feel like I watched the credits for the music and I don't remember is he credited? He's credited, oh, yeah. Wow. Totally and it, and it. it's not a different Bill Murray. Bill Groundhog Day Ghost Busting Ass Murray. Who you gonna call? I know that. Just don't tell anybody. When I saw that I was sure okay, this is this is something that someone just put on trivia. Mm-hmm. He has a really great voice too. The trivia point sounded too good to be true, but I found a picture of Bill Debbie and John Waters in the recording booth laying down the track. So it's a legit factoid right there. Interesting. But like, was there any information about how that happened? No, I couldn't find anything other than that it happened. Huh. Try to think of how Bill Murray would have been connected to John Waters. I think it's just John Waters was developing, you know, a a career and and people knew Pink Flamingos especially. but. I think that was when people started really reaching out to him like, okay, this is a person who's going to be around for a while making interesting stuff. I want to be in some of the early things. Hmm. On the way home from their date, Francine and Todd pass Elmer and Sandra trying and failing to change a tire on the side of the road. They slow down long enough for Elmer to recognize them and then just drive off. When the happy couple reach Francine's home, he is excited to meet her adult children. Lulu is obviously doing macrame and Dexter is building a shoe stack sculpture but both of their interactions with Todd are pleasant. Todd recognizes Dexter from the news, but is proud of him for having done his time and transitioned to artwork. Todd asks to see Francine's bedroom. When they're all alone, she admits to having a difficult year and her struggles with alcoholism, and Todd is very understanding and supportive. Let me kiss away your DTs, honey. They profess their love for each other before laying down to make love on the floor in front of the bedroom fireplace. The next morning, Francine is snoring hard, and Todd has to elbow her awake. He has something to ask her. Will you marry me? You don't mean that. Yes, I do. I want you to be my wife. Oh, Todd, of course I'll marry you, but can you afford to take us on as a family? Hell yes, I can. I own the Edmondson Drive-In Cinema. You do? (laughs) I figured Francine might be a little worried about marrying another theater owner, but she seems only excited about it. We cut right to the drive-in, which is showing an all-night marathon of Marguerite Dura films, specifically The Truck, a.k.a. The Lorry, India Song, and Destroy, She Said. The joke here being that these are all slow, cerebral, dramatic pieces and terrible choices for an all-night marathon, however well-made they may be. We're given more clues about the relative fanciness of Todd's theater by the advertisement for the concession stand that precedes the film. Visit our concession stand. We feature beluga caviar, succulent oysters, and champagne. Take a tempting taste treat and ponder the intellectual meaning of cinema. We see the drive-in lobby full of tuxedos and ball gowns as people indulge in the fine catering. Todd and Francine enter the room. Oh, it's very highbrow, Todd. Yep, we only show first-run art films here. He ducks into the next room for a moment to do a fat line of coke. (laughs) And suddenly Francine's mother is sitting at the table with the coke. Outside, Francine is trying to read an issue of Cahiers de Cinema and looks totally perplexed by it. For those unfamiliar, Cahiers de Cinema is the longest-running French film magazine that counted many new-wave filmmakers among its early contributors. It inspired a parody film zine that I absolutely love, published by writer-director Mike White, called Cashiers du Cinemart, and I recommend looking for it online because it's completely hysterical. Francine's mother encourages Todd to snort a giant line of coke and then get back to his date. Although it sounds like she calls him Eddie here for some reason, which maybe that's his real name and he's just using the name Todd. Go get her, Eddie! Right after I blast off! <laughs> Francine and Todd leave together and we cut to La Fontaine Blue, where Cuddles is holding her cotillion tonight. It seems like they're late to the party, but they move right to the dance floor, and every time Todd is out of Francine's eyeline, he looks really bored to be here. But as soon as she spins around again, he gets really animated when she's facing him, hammering home that he's putting on a show. The song ends and the crowd applauds as Cuddles is welcomed to the stage. She's escorted by Heinz, the monocled manservant, and the two start dancing in the middle of the party. Heinz presents Cuddles with a ring and asks for her hand in marriage, and she readily accepts. I do like that she was the maid and then became rich, and he was the chauffeur, and now he's marrying yes. her, so he is too. We cut back to Francine's house that night. As the Corvette rolls into the driveway, we cut right to Todd and Francine having wild sex under the covers, while downstairs, Elmer and Sandra are sneaking through the house with a gun. Just as they reach the bedroom door, Todd is turning the knob to leave, and they hide down the hall. 
Todd sneaks downstairs and Francine wakes up, sniffing all over the house. We follow her nose downstairs and in her POV, we find Todd sitting on the couch with her mother in his lap. Let's keep loving a family, honey. No! Not my mother! So it turns out that LaRue, Francine's mother, mm-hmm. was talking to him on the phone yeah. when she said, let's get in on that money. Francine's mother waves flowers in her face to calm her down, but then quickly swaps them for dirty shoes as the number nine starts flashing. Upstairs, Lulu and Dexter can hear their mother being tortured in the living room, and Elmer and Sandra move back down the hall with a gun toward the stairs. Dexter rushes out and stomps hard on Sandra's foot so that she accidentally pulls the trigger and shoots Elmer in the back as he's moving down the stairs. Lulu wraps some macrame around Sandra's throat to choke her to death. Todd collects the gun from the bottom of the stairs and starts scheming with Francine's mother. They will blame Francine for the deaths of Elmer and Sandra and get her committed to an asylum. Todd moves to the front door and whistles to his friend Flashlight for help dealing with the kids. Flashlight is instructed to sell Lulu to a massage parlor. Now as for you, bunghole, you got an appointment at the house of torture with some very dirty old men. <laughs> All right, chickens, move Todd calls Happy Hills Mental Hospital and requests they come to collect Francine. Todd and Francine's mother make plans how to spend her money while using Francine as a bench. All the while, Francine is having a complete breakdown and can't get a word out as her face convulses. Francine manages to come to her senses and escapes before she is committed against her will. She runs out into the street and Todd chases her until he is struck by a limousine driven by Heinz. Cuddles is terrified that they've just killed the love of Francine's life and instructs Heinz to back the car up where he also hits Francine's mother, LaRue. (laughs) When Flashlight sees this happen, he decides to book it on foot and releases Dexter and Lulu, who race to hug their mother. Cuddles approaches Francine with an air freshener to calm her down, and she sprays it in the air as they all take whiffs, and the number 10 blinks in the corner. The end. Richard, what did you think of this movie? (laughs) You were very quiet. Uh, This movie was infuriating to watch. It's so great. It's I, really wonderful. Don't get me wrong. I loved Cuddles. She was my saving grace yeah. through this movie. Uh, I, I, it, I love everybody. There's honestly not a character that I don't love the performance 110%. It, it, was, it was really over the top. And, and a lot of times that can work for me, but it, this just didn't, Man, it didn't work for me. We're, lucky for you, we're never going to get as far as 1988 for the next john waters movie and it's also the most mainstream one of all so (laughs) although we'll probably have some in our 70s reviews i would guess so get ready for pink flamingos (laughs) if you think this is over the top you know what though you know it's funny is i've i've seen other john waters films and i think i almost like it more when it's even further over the top oh i do too so like this was honestly kind of I knew I was going to land between you two because I knew you were going to love it, Patrick, and I knew you were going to hate it, Richard. <laughs> and I'm somewhere in the middle because I'm just like, it's not John Watersy enough yeah. for me, but it's also not like normal movie enough for me. And so, like for me, I don't. This isn't a movie I would care to watch over and over but again. But on the on the spectrum of films, I would say this is closest to Forbidden Zone of anything that we've covered, which is why I fully expected Richard to not care for. It. Yeah, no, exactly. This is. Yeah, I had a lot of Forbidden Zone vibes. Yeah, because <laughs> uh, like the I feel like the uh, John as far as John Waters movies, it was like I've seen Serial Mom and Hairspray <laughs> and Hairspray. Yeah. yeah, which are like. Well, I've seen The Straight Story, and I've seen The Elephant Man. <laughs> it's like, oh, okay, well, then you haven't seen a David Lynch movie, really. <laughs> yeah. I mean... Even this, I would say, is not not indicative of what I think of when I think of a John Waters I movie. Don't, I don't think so either, but it is it is kind of... it has. I feel like it has almost more story than a John Waters movie yes, normally has. Yeah. But not enough story to be like like hairspray or something like that. I, I think he was trying not to overcomplicate it beyond the typical structure of a Douglas Sirk movie. Yeah, that makes sense. Which but is just was, each character of the family has their own subplot. But and, I did find it very tiring because I'm like, there's not a lot of story here, and these scenes are like long with a lot of energy in them, and I'm like, I don't know why why no, we're I, still I, doing this. I feed <laughs> off the performances the whole time. There's also probably 20 minutes worth of deleted scenes that you can find on YouTube very easily. And they're entertaining, but they're they're slow compared to the rest of the film. Yeah. Um, I can see why they didn't make the cut, but they're also beautiful. Like the, the cinematography is legitimately 
beautiful for a lot of this film, which, you know, before he didn't care a lot about that. And this is the first film where he really stepped it up and tried something yeah. like specifically visual. Yeah. And doing it in 35 millimeter is great that you have, you know, you can do the Blu-rays and the 4Ks of this one. You know, there's a there's a really great documentary. I think it's it's still on Netflix that I watched a while back uh, called I Am Divine. Right, yeah. And it's, and it's really fascinating. And I, I think that I appreciate John Waters and, you know, Divine and, and what they're doing here more, having watched that to, to sort of, like, understand where the, the, this all originated. Right. So I think that... You know, that helps, but... It's also fun because these people are all, like, legitimately best friends with each other. Yeah. Like, this is one... Like, like this is, like, when you get those Adam Sandler movies where he's like, we're just going to go to Hawaii and I'm just going to make a movie with all my friends. It's like, this would have been a fun set to hang out on. Like, even, like, a lot of the time for these kinds of movies, there's a couple characters that are not completely in on the joke. But everybody here knows what they're doing. You know? Everybody here gets it. And I, I just love it. I, I love everything about it. And uh, yeah, John Waters stuff, just it's all great. I mean, some of the later stuff got really tame. Um, yeah. Like the uh, A Dirty Shame was trying to be like a gross out movie, but it was like so late in his career that regular movies were grosser. <laughs> and so it's just, just like, okay, it doesn't really work the same way that your other stuff does. But yeah, um, the early stuff kills me and polyester fits great into his lineup so far what did uh what did you guys think thumbs up thumbs down it's a thumbs up for me. um i'll give it a thumbs up i didn't put it super high on my list though because i it's not it's not a movie that i would watch very frequently because i i find it tiring <laughs> sure um i haven't placed uh 53 out of 71 all right richard uh, I might actually have it pretty close to that. Uh, I'm surprised it's so low, actually, for Jess. Uh, but it's not low because, like, no, I, I hated get it. it. I get it. It's just low because I'm just like, this is not, this is not a, I'm going to put this on every day kind of movie. Yeah, I, I'm really not bored by any part of it. Like, none, none of the scenes feel too slow to me. Like, no, I'm not bored by it. I'm exhausted by it. Oh, because it's because it's too it's, too it's much. Ca- it's chaotic. Oh, I I love it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but you're also like ADD. That's true. <laughs> yeah, see, and and I had the instead of exhaustion, I had just infuriation, which is yeah. what I felt almost entirely throughout Forbidden Zone. I, I don't know how you could be infuriated by either one of those movies because they're just you give yourself to them and you just <laughs> ride them. You, you you don't even have to like fully engage. You just experience them while they're on. I think that I might also put it in a different place, probably higher up, if I watched it not late at night wishing I could go to bed. <laughs> sure. I think that's fair. All right. What, what's your numbering here? Uh, I have it at uh, 54, uh, which puts it below Harry's War and above Pinball Summer. Below Harry's War. At least oh Harry's War had a... Don't, potential it didn't have explosions. anything it literally had nothing <laughs> i forgot to say what mine was above and below uh i have it at 53 which is out of i have it at 53 out of 71 which is below bloody birthday and above in proper channels okay i have it in 10 uh, which is under friday the 13th part 2 and above the howling but it's it squeaks into my top 10 for now for now i think other things will land in the top 10 <laughs> after this uh, we're getting into a really solid batch of films in a row here. Our writer-director was John Waters. Before Polyester, Waters' films were cast almost exclusively from his Dreamlanders crew. His best known are probably Pink Flamingos, Female Trouble, and Desperate Living from that period. Uh, he worked exclusively in 16mm before this film and would follow it up with probably his most successful and mainstream film, Hairspray, seven years later. In the 90s, Waters directed Crybaby, Serial Mom, and Pecker. And his final feature so far was A Dirty Shame with Johnny Knoxville. And he has said, and I tend to agree that bad taste is dead. And that when he made Pink Flamingos, it was supposed to be shockingly unrelatable. And now most people probably live down the street from a Babs Johnson. So it's not even like you're not even grossed out by these people anymore. Waters has complimented his directing career with books and speaking tours. He also acts occasionally, including a guest appearance on The Simpsons as Homer's gay friend John. He's also in Seed of Chucky. Uh, he's in the Lonely Island Do the Creep video with Nicki Minaj. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and uh, more recently, he has a recurring credit on Law & Order Special Victims Unit as Pornmonger Man. <laughs> <laughs> 
So I, I hope that he's just a, a regular character that they'll just go to every once in a while that runs the porn shop down the street. The music here was for Michael Kamen. This is an earlier composer credit for Kamen. He just previously recorded the first and only installment of She, Security Hazards Expert, an attempted female Bond franchise. He's back next season scoring Venom, and later he scores Dead Zone, Brazil, Highlander, Lethal Weapon, Die Hard, Roadhouse, Lethal Weapon 2, Die Hard 2, Not Roadhouse 2, Nothing But Trouble, Hudson Hawk, yeah. Last Boy Scout, and of course, Last Action Hero, because you want the guy who did Die Hard and Lethal Weapon if you're going to do that. Of course, yeah. I, I really like his music. Yeah. It's, it's it's all very similar, but it's all like identifiable. Like I, I would say like, yeah, because like, like even in my head, like looking at his credits, like I feel like the music in Robin Hood is very much like the music in Die Hard, the action right. stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, he has Oscar nominations for his scores to Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, and Don Juan DeMarco. Music was obviously contributed by Debbie Harry as well. She's obviously a famous musician, the lead singer of the band Blondie. She played herself last season in Meatloaf Vehicle Roadie. She has more acting credits than I realized, but we'll see her next in Videodrome. And then she reunited with John Waters as a character in Hairspray. She wrote Call Me for American Gigolo last season, and her song One Way or Another showed up on the Little Darling soundtrack, part of why it never got a decent home video release. More music from Bill Murray, who sings a song. He's in Groundhog Day, he's in Ghostbusters, he's in Life Aquatic. We've reviewed his work in Loose Shoes, Where the Buffalo Roam, and Caddyshack, and he's back later this season for Stripes. Cinematographer Dave Inslee, this was his first DP credit. He's back for Hairspray and Crybaby, and lately mostly television, including The Wire, Blue Bloods, and Person of Interest. Editor Charles Ruggiero, he also played a bus passenger in the film. He previously cut Female Trouble and Desperate Living, which I saw as a double feature the first time, and I will forever mix them up with each other. Ruggiero later came back to edit Hairspray for Waters. Divine played Francine Fishpaw. Divine and John Waters were friends in high school and made a series of ultra-low-budget titles on the way to their breakout project, Pink Flamingos. They would work together on nine films, ending with Hairspray, and Divine appeared in a few non-Waters films, including Lust in the Dust in 1984. Divine was also famously the inspiration for the design and characterization of Ursula the Sea Witch from Disney's The Little Mermaid. Songwriter-producer Howard Ashman selected the Divine design from an array of witch pitches. Sadly, Divine <laughs> died of a heart attack shortly you can't after do the- that. You can't say <clears throat> something really funny. <laughs> and say something really tragic. I could do whatever I want. <laughs> Sadly, Divine died of a heart attack shortly after the release of Hairspray, but friends have apparently said that he would have loved the character. A couple years later, Ashman too was gone, a story which is told beautifully in the documentary Waking Sleeping Beauty about the Disney renaissance of the 80s and 90s. Tab Hunter played Todd Tomorrow. He was Joe Hardy in Damn Yankees, Mr. Stewart in Grease 2, and he was a teen heartthrob in the 50s. He's still pretty hunky here in 81, though. There's also something, though, about the people in John Waters' movies who are not a part of his regular cast. The way that they throw themselves into the role 110% and just trust him that this movie works, like, on set. And I, I love that about Tab Hunter's performance here, because he's just going for it the whole time. Well, also, I mean, Tab Hunter came out later in his life. Right. And so I'm, I'm sure John Waters had an inkling. Yeah, no, I don't or, doubt that. Yeah. yeah. Apparently, when he was asked how he enjoyed working with Divine on the film, his response was, he's one of my finest leading ladies. He later reunited with Divine for Lust in the Dust, which actually looks great judging from the cast. It's got Tab and Divine as the leads. It also stars Jeffrey Lewis, Henry Silva, Cesar Romero, Woody Strode from 1981's Scream. No. And apparently a young, uncredited appearance from the librarian himself, Noah Wiley. <laughs> it's directed by it's directed by Paul Bartel, who also directed Death Race 2000 and Eating Raul. Edith Massey plays Cuddles Kavinsky. She's another regular from Waters Dreamlander stable. She appeared in five of his films, ending with this one. Before this, she played herself in Multiple Maniacs, Divine's Mother in Pink Flamingos, Aunt Ida in Female Trouble, and the evil Queen Carlotta in Desperate Living. With the money she made from her appearances in Waters movies, she moved to Venice Beach, California and opened a thrift store. She also appears on the cover of John Cougar Mellencamp album, Nothing Matters and What If It Did, and in Mellencamp's music video for the song This Time. David Sampson played Elmer Fishpaw. He doesn't have a lot of credits, but he shows up again as a WZZT official in Hairspray. Mary Garlington played Lulu Fishpaw. Her only other appearances are in documentaries about polyester or divine. 
Ken King played Dexter Fishpaw. His only other credit was as an uncredited stand-in for Peter Fonda on a TV movie called A Thief of Time. They apparently found him in a bar and offered him the part. <laughs> Mink Stoll played Sandra Sullivan. She's a regular cast member of Waters who shows up as Connie Marble in Pink Flamingos, Taddy Davenport in Female Trouble, Peggy Gravel in Desperate Living, and Dottie Hinkle in Serial Mom. Joni Ruth White plays LaRue. She also plays Old Lady Shopper in Street Trash. It's a fun double feature, this in Street Trash. <laughs> Stiv Baders played Bobo Belsinger. He was a singer and guitarist of punk rock groups Dead Boys and The Lords of the New Church. He was struck by a car and killed in 1990, but had requested in the event of his death that his ashes were to be scattered over Jim Morrison's grave. His girlfriend complied, but admitted to Director Waters that she also snorted some of the cremains oh, God. to be closer to him. Oh. Rick Brightonfield played Dr. Arnold Quackenshaw. He was a champion of public television whose work led directly to the Public Broadcasting Act of 1967. So he's a cool guy. Mary Vivian Pierce played Nun A. That's the first nun from the Church of the Shepherd's Flock. It's not a huge part in this film, but I included it because Pierce is the only Dreamlander who has appeared in every John Waters film, from his 1964 short film, Hag in a Black Leather Jacket, to 2004's A Dirty Shame. She's been in literally every film that he's made. Cookie Mueller played Betty Lelinsky. She's Cookie in Pink Flamingos and Multiple Maniacs, and Flipper in Desperate Living. George Hulse played the school principal. He also plays the sex change doctor in Desperate Living. Steve Yeager played Press B. In Pink Flamingos, he plays Nat Curzon from The Tatler. He's also the director of one of Divine's documentaries called Divine Trash and a John Waters documentary called Bad Taste. Katie Casey played a nurse. She was a teenager in The Boogeyman last year. I think one of the teenagers by the lake that gets killed. Mm. Dorothy Brody plays Abortion Picket. She's a Los Angeles artist and the wife of Leo Brody. Leo Brody was another abortion picketer. He's the husband of Dorothy Brody, and he's a USC English professor, film critic, and a well-known commentator for pop culture. Joan Inslee played another abortion picketer, probably a relative of cinematographer Dave Inslee. Sam Inslee is also probably a relative of cinematographer Dave Inslee. Brooke Yeaton played porno picketer. He has mostly art department credits on titles like Boondock Saints and 147 episodes of NCIS New Orleans, but he was married to Tracy Lords in the mid-90s. Steve Waters played another porno picketer. He's a brother of John Waters, and he appeared previously in Multiple Maniacs and Pink Flamingos. Sharon Waters was the sister-in-law of John and the wife of Steve until their divorce, I think. Jay Bennett played a bus passenger. He's the personal assistant to Divine on this film and Lust in the Dust. He also appears in the I Am Divine documentary as himself. Rocky Collins plays another bus passenger. He was a producer on a lot of educational programming like Nova, and more recently, the Stuff You Should Know series, adapted from the podcast of the same name. Denny Dormady played Man Leaving Charles Theater. This was his first film, and he didn't make a second film until 2000 for John Waters' Cecil B. Demented as another moviegoer character. Bernard J. played the doorman at the Edmondson, and that was Divine's manager playing that part. Carl Otter played TV reporter at a movie theater. He's a crime lab photographer in 36 Homicide Life on the Streets episodes, and more recently, he was district commander on The Wire for seven episodes. Marla Aaron Wapner played a pregnant teen, and she also played a White House press corps reporter on House of Cards. I think that's everything for Polyester. If you guys have any thoughts you'd like to share with us, we are Vintage Video Pod on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Letterboxd, where, as I've said before, you can find each of our full movie rankings for the year. We can also be found at VintageVideoPodcast.com. We have a Discord. You can join the 24-7 movie chat and share your thoughts on episodes past, present, and future at VintageVideoPodcast.com slash Discord. And if you're listening on YouTube, don't forget to subscribe. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time when we'll be discussing Demonoid, Messenger of Death, which IMDb describes like so. Spouses looking for silver in Mexico find a 300-year-old severed hand driven by a demon. We leave you now with the trailer for Demonoid messenger of death created by satan to prey on the living it feeds on your most hidden desires and secret fears it's been dormant for centuries but now its time has come again
demonoid, messenger of death, a warning for those who believe, eternal damnation for those who don't. Demonoid, is it the last of its kind, or the first of many to come? By the time you discover the answer, it may already be too late. Starring Samantha Egger. In the name of God, don't do it. Stuart Whitman. Death is deliverance. Why must they kill what's already dead? Demonoid, messenger of death. <laughs>